joining me in the studio is the very colourful, uh, well, always very colourful and always very wonderful David Norris. It's lovely to see you again, David. Great to see you, Niall, indeed. And um, what I, a lovely studio. It's all decorated. I mean, uh, the, unfortunately, the listeners can't see it, but there's tinsel of different colours. Christmas tree They've even the decorated the microphone, look. Even the microphone has <laughs> gold tinsel on it. And I was also just thinking, uh, what a wonderful name PJ is. You're talking about a PJ there. It couldn't be any other country except Ireland. <laughs> PJ. Yeah. I, I, I just absolutely love that name. Well, David, you have, you're a man at 75 years of age. Yes, absolutely. And, and you don't look a day over 40. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, how are you feeling first, by the way? Because well, you went to a pretty bad time. I'm feeling health. furious because the old bloody taxi was 20 minutes late. <laughs> he was, You yes. should get rid of that taxi company. <laughs> They're always letting me down. All right, okay. You know, yeah, well, dreadful. <laughs> I won't name them. Uh, no, but best not. They know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a terribly nice taxi man called Liam Gray. And he was lovely, and he'd always wanted to meet me. And, and I, I was, I was terribly upset about it. All I gave him hell the first thing, the beginning of it. <laughs> but after it, you calmed down eventually. Yeah, but I said to him, "I'm not attacking you. I'm attacking the taxi company." Right, yeah. but look, you're, yes. you're a colourful man, 75 years of age. How is your health, first of all? Because you went through a tough period. Yes, in your my life. health is pretty good. I did. I got cancer of the liver. Um, um, How did that manifest itself, by the way? Did, we, well, did you just it, get a pain one day and went I to the doctor? I felt a bit or? uncomfortable. I went to the doctor a couple of times and I said, I really don't feel that good and so on and so forth. And they did tests. Nothing came up and so on and so forth. And I went back and then they sent me to a liver specialist. Uh, but before we got the results of that, uh, I got the, one o'clock in the morning, the most excruciating pain. I never felt and I didn't think pain could be so ghastly. And, um, and where did you get the pain? Just in in my stomach, in okay. my stomach. And um, I said I can't ring a doctor at one o'clock in the morning. It's not fair. So eventually, after twenty minutes, it calmed down. Then an hour later, it came back and so on and so forth. Went on through the night, and at seven o'clock in the morning, I rang him and he said, oh, "Get in." And did you have all the symptoms? Off. Were you getting sick, or did you have a temperature? No, nope, no, no, no. Just the agonizing pain. And I tell you, the longest three minutes in the world is the three minutes it takes between filling out the prescription for morphine and giving the injection. Can I say, I love morphine. (laughs) It is the most wonderful drug, this beautiful feeling of wee. (laughs) And all the pain was gone. All the pain is gone. It's blissful. And, and the moment when he said to you, you know, David, you've cancer. Yes. I mean, what was that feeling like? Did you think to yourself, end of the world, I'm going to fight this? Were you positive? Were you negative? Did you go into a depression? How did you feel about that? Well, it, it, my doctor actually came in and, and s- said to me, um, I don't know, I seem to be getting a bit confused about this, but I do remember him coming in to the kitchen with a big sad face. And he said, I have bad news for you. I'm afraid you have an inoperable, incurable cancer. And I said, put my arm around him and I said, oh, there, there, don't worry about it. So I'll make you a cup of tea. And I made a cup of tea for my doctor to cheer him up. <laughs> so it was going to reverse psychology. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't worry about these things, you know. I mean, I'm, as, a, as you say, I'm 75 now. I've had a wonderfully interesting life. Well, let, let's let's talk about your interesting yes. life. I mean, look, you were born in the Belgian Congo. I wasn't. Your father yet. was in World War One. My father got the Marine VC in the First World War and a knighthood in the Second um, he was a kind of professional war hero. Whereas, you, you didn't have a close relationship with him, but really. well, I didn't because he died when I was five, mm-hmm. and he was in Africa most of that time. I do have a couple of memories of him. I remember mm-hmm. 
he bought a, a, a car. They had the most wonderful cars in Africa and chauffeurs and all this kind of stuff. But he bought a quite a modest car, a, a Ford Prefect or Anglia or whatever, I can't remember what it was. But I remember the registration, ZF8. It was from Cork. Uh, it must have been second-hand. Yeah. Uh, and he took us down to Killarney. And I remember Bally Bunyan. And uh, I was down there with um, a friend of mine from the Law Department, Yvonne Scanner. We were both speaking at a conference. And um, she said, have you been to Bally Bunyan before? I said, oh, yes, I have. Yeah. And she said, what was it like? Oh, I said, it was, uh, it was this place on the seashore. Uh, there was a, a, a cliff with an old castle and a cave through the cliff, and there were all these guest houses uh, with uh, glass porches on them. We said, that's exactly it. When were you last here? I said, uh, 1948. <laughs> 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 I had a good memory of it. When he passed away, you mentioned, of course, that you had to force yourself to cry, literally, because you didn't have that close friendship. I nearly gave myself a hernia, <laughs> squeezing out a tear, because my mother put her arm around my brother and myself, and said, well, there's only the three of us now. We're going to have to stick together. And they were roaring, crying. And I, I squeezed, squeezed, squeezed to get a tear out. I didn't feel a bloody thing. I mean, I missed the car. That was the thing I missed. I didn't miss my father because right, I didn't okay. know him. Because you didn't really have any great memories no. of him because and, he was away most of the time. And, and my father's family and my mother's family uh, looked down on each other simultaneously, which is a mathematical impossibility but a social reality. And I remember sticking up for my father's family and saying to my aunt on one occasion, well, I understood that my grandmother was a baroness in her own right. And she laughed and she said, well, it wasn't a real title, was it? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, it wasn't British. And she said, <laughs> well, those things mean nothing in the continent. They give them away uh, like peanuts. And she said, one good look at your grandmother's nose would tell you what she was. And I said, what was that prayer? And she said, a mid-European Jewess. And I was absolutely thrilled. I thought, this is so exotic. I but you, but you have a wonderful exotic accent. And people, you're famous for your accent. People take it off all the time. Some great Irish impersonators. I know. I even have a go of it myself every oh, now and then. Oh, do it. Oh, go on. Can you? I bet you can't. It's wonderful to meet you, David. It's absolutely Oh, that's not great. bad. That's not bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So people think of this wonderful accent yeah. you have. It's grand. It has an amazing well, presence. I mean, I'm where, where does that accent come from? Did your mother or father, were they, they, were they, they quite they, grand? They, my, my, my mother's family spoke like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, my mother came from a, a, one of the very old Gaelic Irish families. It was cu rather curious. Um, in the 16th century, most of the old Gaelic families, they um, surrendered to the, to the Tudors. Um, and um, uh, in my case, they, they gave up being kings of Ossory and they became um, barons instead, which is a bit of a come down from being a king to being a of course, yeah. baron. Of course, yeah. Waste of time. And they stopped speaking Irish, they stopped wearing Irish clothes, they shaved off the moustaches, and, and so on and so forth. And you'll find that the heads of all the old Gaelic Irish families are Anglican, whereas the majority of the family are Roman Catholic, with two interesting exceptions. The O'Connor Don, which is the greatest title in Ireland, it was the descendant of the last High King, and the MacDermot Prince of Coolavin. What a wonderful title. It is, I'd love a title like that. And he painted my, my, my kitchen green uh, for me when he was a student in Trinity. Right. For a bit of extra pocket money. But then, unfortunately, when your mother passed away, yes. it was very different because your whole life changed then because you it had did. such a close relationship with your mother. I did. And just at Christmas, just two, a couple of days after Christmas, uh, I found her dead in bed. And it, it was really unpleasant. You described that moment of having your mother and then suddenly she was gone. Absolutely. And you, you, you didn't handle that very well. 
Well, I, I was terribly upset, and, and it gave me a fear of death, which I've completely got rid of. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not the slightest bit frightened of death at all. I don't mind dying. It doesn't bother me. Of course, the thing is, that may change on my deathbed. <laughs> I may be the equivalent. Do you believe in God? Oh, I do, yes, absolutely. And I'm a regular churchgoer every Sunday. Are you Catholic? Or well, I'm or- Catholic in a sense. Uh, I'm Anglican, and we say we're the Reformed Catholic Church. My great friend, Michael Morn, when we were tiny children, we had a fight over a dinky toy, and Michael stuck his tongue out and said, you're not even a Catholic. I went home in floods of tears to my mother. I said, what's wrong, darling? I said, Michael Morn says I'm not a Catholic. She said, of course you are. Don't you say it? Every Sunday in the cathedral, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church said you're just not part of the Roman era like Michael Morn. My mother grandly dismissed the papacy and the Roman Catholic church as the Roman era. <laughs> but did, did, I mean, the fact that you're a gay man and you yes. grew up as a gay man, yes. and of course the church was everything against homosexuality. Oh, yes, including that, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, who was a... And did that not turn you off the Catholic church? No, it didn't. I just knew they were wrong. I mean, you made statements yourself about the Pope, oh, uh, yes. John Paul. Yes. You had a go at him. I did indeed. And in fact, I was writing uh, an article for the Evening Herald. Uh, every Thursday I had my article, and I wrote an article uh, taking the Pope to pieces because of his hateful language. You said, you said his language led to anti-gay violence. Yes, it did. There's no question doubt about that. This is, of course, back in the 70s, well, the 60s and 70s, we had the queer bashing, yes. which would have been very common in those days, yes. something that was spoken and about quite a lot. Unfortunately, it's still happening, which is very sad. And when did you realise that you were gay? I mean, well, I, I I've never, had this conversation yes. with people before who are gay, right? Yes. And there's always this argument about people being born gay or not born gay, yes. or whether it's something that you grow up. And I believe that we're born or all born equal. Yes. I mean, because I don't consider myself a heterosexual man, I just consider yes. myself a man. Yes. And interestingly enough, during the marriage equality referendum, News Talk got a complaint from the, to the broadcasting authority because somebody was on the air who was gay and said I was born gay. And because the presenter didn't challenge him, because there's no evidence to suggest people are born gay, the complaint was upheld we got on a point of principle and fact. Okay, so... It's all rubbish. What the hell difference does it make? So when did you realize... What was the point that you turned around and said, I don't really like her, but I like him? Yes. <laughs> but I always knew that. Always, 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 always. I mean, even since I was a small child, I mean, I liked women... I liked men, and I found there was a real attraction. Uh, and, of course, in my teenage years, it became sexualized. Uh, but I didn't. I thought I was the right one. You thought uh, everybody else was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I was the alpha male. Uh, I was the one who was always the leader of the mischief. I was the leader of the gang and all this kind of stuff in my little group. Um, and uh, I, I was shocked when they started taking an instant girl. I knew it was unhealthy <laughs> and that God had not wanted it. <laughs> so you thought the people with an interest in girls, it was an unhealthy relationship. Absolutely. And, and I you, warned them about it. <laughs> you should be sticking with the boys. <laughs> exactly. Dad. Absolutely. But of course, that led, I mean, at the time, of course, it was very taboo. It was, it was illegal. Well, the Irish Times used to refer to me as the Irish homosexual. I mean, I was the only one in Ireland at that stage. <laughs> you were the only gay in the village. Abs- absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it was illegal in this country, and that was something yes. that you decided that you would take upon yourself to change that. Yes. Well, originally I had hoped, because I was involved in the Irish gay rights movement, and we had a legal section, and I was in charge of that, among other things. And we defended people who were found in compromising circumstances. We had a wonderful lawyer called Garrett Sheehan. And he managed through cross-examination 
to destroy every case the guards brought. So we reduced them down to zero. But I kept thinking that perhaps one of these men would use a constitutional defence. Uh, but they wouldn't, of course, because they didn't want the last... So one. what was the basis of law, that you were interfering with somebody's private life? Uh, the basis of our challenge to the yes. law? Yes. It was uh, Article 8 of the European Convention, the, the, the uh, right to privacy and so on. But um, I thought that, we, that, that, that one of them would take it up, but they didn't. So we built a case around my experience, and uh, we, we had a wonderful uh, barrister, the late Garrett Cooney, who died just some months ago, um, and uh, we chose him because he was a conservative Roman Catholic. And uh, on the first day, uh, Garrett stood up in the court and said, uh, Justice, my client, Mr. Norris, is a congenital irreversible homosexual, which was news to me. But I <laughs> it's said, a good well, title, isn't it? That's what it takes. Let's roll with it. So the next day, the newspaper said, Rising to his feet in the court yesterday, Garrett Cooney SC told the court that he was an irreversible congenital homosexual. Garrett went absolutely crackers and demanded a retraction. So the third day, the headline said, I'm not a homosexual, says Cooney. <laughs> and everybody was saying, hello, over the breakfast marmalade. <laughs> so the law was repealed in yes. 1993. That's right. Yes. And it seems bizarre that it took that long to make sure that it wasn't illegal to be gay in Ireland. Yes, Mind you, I think the law was probably ignored somewhat for 10 years previous Well, that, that was the government's argument. They yeah. said, first of all, that the law was absolutely necessary to keep Irish morals intact. And the others, on the other hand, they said, well, we never enforce it. So, so what was, I mean, just to clarify for people, so the, the law, when you say it was illegal to be homosexual, it wasn't actually illegal to be homosexual. It was illegal it was to act on it. To, yeah, sodomy was illegal. Exactly. The act Absolutely. of sodomy. Well, no, it was more than that. Which is perpetrated, by the way, by heterosexual couples Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Um, um, the 1861 Act uh, 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 criminalised uh, 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 sodomy and so on and so forth. Uh, but the 1885 Act, the Labouchere Amendment, um, criminalised what are described as any act of gross indecency between males without defining it. So two airmen, in the RAF men, in the 1950s were convicted for looking at each other lasciviously. Now, where do you go with freedom if you can't look at somebody lasciviously without going to jail for it? You know, it's <laughs> well, it's like, it's like at the time, of course, there were, I remember reading an article in the paper there, by, and there was a letter to the Department of Education who had been looking after young people at the time of um, two people who were acting immorally down a lane, and one of them was sent off to a Magdalen laundry uh, oh. because they were having a canoodle down a lane. Oh, dear. I mean, they, were kids, they were kissing. And I think the lot, what they actually said, the Minister of Education said, she was acting like a common prostitute. Then, so judgmental. Uh, that's the, but that's and the country inhuman. we lived in. Yes, it I mean, is. W- when you look at Ireland now, if you could go back to whoever you admired, say, yeah, I don't know, 100 years ago, who did you admire 100 years ago? Well, a little bit more than 100 years ago, uh, Charles Stuart Parnell. Right. If, would, you, if you could go back to him now, yes. in time, and describe Ireland now, what would you say about it? I would, <laughs> I would say to him, Mr. Parnell, this is an island in which you need not be afraid of your relationship with Kitty O'Shea. It won't destroy your political career. People will still love you. They'll still vote for you. You will still be the leader of Ireland. But an even greater figure was a little bit before him, uh, Daniel O'Connell. I think the greatest Irish politician that ever lived. 
Daniel O'Connell. I mean, he's Do you worry about the world that we live in now? Now, the world we live in now, contrary to what we see in TV, is a much safer world, generally speaking. Uh-huh. Because, I don't think so. Well, no, I think so. I think we hear about a lot of stuff because we're in touch with social no. media news. But if you look at the amount of people who died, for example, in world wars, etc., we don't have that now, thankfully, not at the moment. We have wars on the ground, wars of terrorism, uh, wars of discrimination, etc., etc. We have the most appalling wars in which, for example, the West got completely wrongly involved, like the invasion of Iraq. I mean, the the bombings of Fallujah and this, these sort of places where hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians were killed by the West. Innocent, decent people. And, I mean, I was in Iraq uh, under Saddam Hussein uh, and I saw what was going on. Uh, I had a huge row with the foreign minister. Do, do, you, uh, think, do, do you think his execution and Gaddafi's execution destabilized a the fatal area? mistake. Destabilize. A fatal mistake. They completely destabilized those reasons. They are now infinitely worse than they were. It's a matter of degree. Of course they were tyrannies, uh, Gaddafi and, and Saddam. Uh, but the country was functioning. Uh, there was less torture. There was less murder. Uh, they were secular societies. You know, um, they should have been brought on. And, of course, the thing is, the West collaborated with Gaddafi. They collaborated with Saddam Hussein until it suited their purposes to dump them. This is the shocking thing. All right. We're going to come back to you. I have to go to a break. By the way, loads of texts by the way coming in. Uh, Philip at West Cork says, I'm not gay, but if I was, I want my partner to be just like David Norris. He's oh, that lovely? Brilliant. Thank you very much, Philip. <laughs> we'll be back with David after the break, and we'll be talking about the presidential election. By the way, some great texts come in here. Somebody says, just a story about what a great gentleman David Norris is. I was doing a university research project on gay and lesbian representation in Irish politics. David was very ill at the time, yet when all other politicians were fobbing me off, David took time to answer my interview questions while in, ho- in a hospital waiting room as he sat waiting on news on his liver transplant. Thank you very much, David, uh, for the individual help that the project and uh, for making Ireland a better place. You truly deserve uh, the title of National Treasure, says Sean in Ballsbridge. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Yeah, in my old hunting ground of Ballsbridge, that's where I was brought up. All right, OK, yeah. OK. Now, let's get to the presidential election. Yes. What made you firstly decide, I'd like to be president of Ireland? Well, uh, people wrote to me. Uh, and and said I should be, mm-hmm. uh, and said I should put my hat in the ring. And actually, I caused that election. There would not have been an election only for my intervention because mm-hmm. the political parties were meeting to agree a, a, a joint candidate. Uh, and they wanted to avoid the election if they possibly could. Uh, so I threw my hat in the ring. And that, that created a situation where for the first time, a whole load of candidates went forward. Uh, previously, it had only been just two candidates. Um, and um, now it uh, subsequently turned into a circus. It, it was appalling. Well, it, with, this, with the last presidential election, yeah. pretty much the same thing happened again. It wasn't as bad. Not, I mean, not I can quite tell as you. Bad. You see, in, in in the presidential election in which I ran in two thousand and eleven, um, each of the people, with the exception of Michael D. Michael D. was given a free run. He was obviously selected by the media, but I have to say he's been a brilliant president. Do you, th- do you think he has? Oh, I do, yes. I think his speeches on economic matters... He's a wonderful speaker. Yes. There's no doubt about absolutely that. Absolutely superb. But from a point of view of activity, has he has been hugely active as a president. No, I would have done things a bit differently, mm-hmm. uh, but... Uh, I know he, he is limited in what he can His do. speeches, I think, were, are, are completely outstanding, and he's, he's, he's challenged the limits on the presidency. I think he has been quite exceptional. Uh, we've been very lucky. I mean, Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, and now Michael D. Mm. I think we we've we really nearly had we nearly had Peter Casey. 
Oh, I don't think so. No, he got twenty five percent of the vote. That's 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 not. Enough. He did. He did okay, mind you. I oh, mean, he, he obviously did? had a yes. bit of a following. Yeah. So, getting back to your presidency, well, you, so I interviewed you at the yes, time, yes. and I remember the day that you came in. Um, I think it was the day where all the controversy started. Yes. But it had only started. And we didn't mention it in the interview. Yeah. It was a pre-recorded yeah. interview and we didn't talk about it. But You were you, one of the very few. We Okay, well, maybe it was because I just like you. But yeah. I, anyway, you decided then you would step away from the campaign. Now, you I did, did, you I did tell come you back why. in. I okay, tell you so why, you, you were taken I'm, out of context. Let's talk yeah, about what I'm, actually under the pressure, Under the pressure, uh, my, my committee, my election committee, just walked away. I mean, they, so was, they, they resigned. I had, I had no committee left. Which, which um, was the worst part? Was it the, the letter that you had sent, um, obviously looking for leniency for your ex-partner? No. And, that, and was, or was it the, the words that were in McGill magazine, which you said, of course, were taken out of context when you talked about the Not only were they taken out of context. Let me tell you, after that election, I took 10 libel actions and I won every single one of them because what they said was absolute, utter Lies, with the exception of the letter for Ezra, which was perfectly justified, uh, and uh, well, it was, it was on governmental paper, of course, which doesn't was what, matter. Which was what the I issue mean, was. No, at the time. it wasn't. That wasn't the issue. The issue was complete homophobia. That's what it was. Uh, and Professor William Shabas, who was a very distinguished international authority, wrote a letter to the Irish Times pointing out. Did you believe he was Ezra was innocent? By the way, because you said no, that he, he was he a t- bloody he t- fool. He took a plea bargain. Yes, but he was, he was exactly. I mean, the, the police, the, the Israeli authorities, have been out to get Ezra from day one because he's an Israeli Jew who supports the Palestinians and has fought all his life for Palestinian human rights. But apart from that, they, th- that interview with Helen Lucy Burke. As part this is of, from McGill magazine. Yes, yes, as part of the discovery process, because I wanted to sue her for libel at that time, but I couldn't get a barrister to take the case. Um, but I sued. Now she did. She did tell. I think she had been on Joe Duffy at the time, and she did say she had a cassette recording of the. Interview. Oh yes, and we, as part of the discovery process, we got that cassette recording, and it demonstrates absolutely that what she wrote was a grotesque okay, distortion so, of what I said okay, so what, and completely wrong. So what she insinuated was that you believed that there shouldn't be an age of consent. Not only that, but she said that I advocated parents having sex with their own children. Nothing as outrageous as that has ever been said she about said, another Irish politician. She made uh, reference she said that, that she was concerned times. about your, your views. She said she was concerned about she your views. She wasn't the slightest bit concerned about anything. So what was the context in which you said that you talked about the age of consent. What was the I context? Did. Well, I was completely justified in that because we have a situ- had a situation where, for example, um, under the law as it was introduced, uh, a, 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 a sexually inexperienced uh, 14-year-old boy who had sex with a sexually experienced 18-year-old girl was automatically guilty of rape, even if she seduced him. I mean, that defies logic. It's absolute rubbish. So what and you that's were, what so, I was speaking out So against. what you were saying was that judges should be able to make decisions? Have, yes, the judges should have an area of discretion. Okay, so where, where it came For from the case... For these kinds well, of I mean, cases... Well, look, realistically, most of us have probably broken the law because the age of consent is 17. I think the majority of people, the average age for losing virginity in this country is 16. So we probably are broken yeah. the law if that was the case, really, if we were to take the law literally. Yes. Uh, so are you saying that the discretion should have been had where two people are close to the same age and yes. sexual intercourse and or consensual sexual intercourse? There was a case recently, was a case recently where um, uh, there was a young man and a young girl and, and the girl was... Six weeks from the age of consent. And her mother reported them to the police and had them charged with rape. 
I mean, that's ridiculous. Okay, so there should be ju- the point you're making was there should, there be, should discretion. be judicial discretion. A judge should be able to look at the case and say, well, in this circumstance, it may be regrettable, it may be wrong, we'll criticise him, but we're not going to send him to jail, we're not going to ruin his life. Okay, but the media went berserk. Yes. At the time, there was you running for presidency. Yes. They believed, the, obviously, the interview and the concerns. They didn't believe anything. Then, they were just absolute grotesque liars. Okay. The reporters but they, but were they wanted sensationalism. Liars. Yes. They I were mean, sensational they said, stories. Look, I, I gave back uh, a pension, which I'd contributed to because I thought there were more people in this country that needed the pension better than I did. That turned up in the newspapers that I was a social welfare cheat and a pension fraud. I, I remember uh, that was, story, yeah. yes. Then there was a thing on the front page of the Sun newspaper uh, with photographs, two pages inside in an editorial, uh, that I had illegally used the Senate to get passports for a string of lovers. Absolute lies, absolute utter lies. And that um, I had but no- how, what, what effect? Uh, and I know there was a lot of stuff written at the time, yes. which was stuff that made it was you, every day. So you step back. Yes. And what effect did that have on you personally at the time? Because I know, for example, if I'm on TV and I say something and it's taken out of context and it goes onto social media nowadays, and social media had just really kicked in around yes. that time. Um, it can have a huge effect on you because you, you want to answer everybody. It was horrendous. And you want to show. I actually, at one stage, I thought, am I some kind of monster? Have I been doing dreadful things without realizing it? You know, am I a wicked, evil person? It was immensely depressing, and I have never suffered from depression. I'm a bubbly, happy person. My nature is to be happy. For two years, I didn't laugh. Uh, for two years, I used to wake up, wake up, crying in my bed. That's the effect it had on me. It was unspeakable. And that kind of cruelty, vicious cruelty, against somebody whom many of them didn't know, and several of them I'd done considerable favours for. I will never forgive them. Never forgive them for it. And And I met one of them in Linster House, and he said hello to me. And I said, come here, you little shit. How dare you speak to me? Never address me again in public. You and your lies cost your newspaper 250,000 euros. And I don't ever want you to speak to me again. And I'm glad to tell you, he fell backwards down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Karma is a bitch. Yeah. Okay, so that, in turn, this depression, you believe, led directly to your illness. I and do. the fact that yes. you can't cancer yes. because, because your immune system I, I, think, I, I think stress... Uh, is one of the causes of cancer. And I said it to my surgeon, and he said, well, it's a possibility, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Yeah, well, well I, of course. I because it wasn't alcoholic. Weak. I said to him, you know, I, I, I occasionally go off on a burst of drink. Uh, would, it be, would it be alcohol? And he said, no, it was, it, it's not alcoholic. But well, you're fond of a drop of wine every now and again. My father. Uh, no, I said you're fond of a glass of oh, wine. Yes, yeah. yes, I am, yes. Would you consider yourself, a, you're not a heavy drinker. I don't drink at all anymore. Okay, all right. I mean, I would occasionally on a Sunday have a, a glass of red wine in the club at lunch uh, if I'm having lamb or something like that. I don't think that's... I hope my doctor... Just to compliment us, yeah. Exactly. If your, doctor, if your doctor's listening, this is yes. medicinal. Yes. Yes. All right, okay. So that you believe directly led on. So there was no possibility of you wanting to ever get into that or run for presidency again. You no, learned I, you got I, badly I couldn't bitten. because, first of all, uh, I mean, when Michael D. ran this time, I said, I think he's too old. And I would, be, would have been too old as well. But also, I wouldn't have had the energy. Uh, because uh, one thing that's happened to me is, since, since the, the cancer operation, the liver transplant, um, I, I've had a terrific decline in my energy. I mean, I, I have to push myself to go for a walk, even. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
a lot of mental energy still. No, but you, there's, no, there's no shortage of that. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a little break. Dave will be back with us after the break for another further 10 minutes. All right, joining me in the studio is Senator David Norris. I'll give you a full title. I, didn't call you. I haven't called you Senator since you came in the door. Doesn't matter, but I do like it coming up to elections to remind people <laughs> to vote for me. Because I am running again this time. I mean, David, look, you've been a great ambassador for human rights over the years. You've talked about a lot of things. I mean, on your own website, you talk about foreign policy, immigration, asylum seekers. Um, you talk about the Lewis and the Metro as well, and our transport system. Which the is Lewis appalling. is the biggest mistake ever. Do you think I'm so? Like, well, yes, of course it is. I heard Pat Kenny talking about it this morning, and he, uh, I think it was Pat, and they were saying about well, you sometimes three or four go past absolutely jammed. Uh, they can't take any more passengers. And I, I pointed that out. I campaigned for an underground railway. It should have been an underground. They'll eventually have to put in an underground. And I had them just on the point of... But doing Ireland it. is a difficult place to get an underground system in Why? because the city's so old. They'd have to go right down. Oh, yes. And London isn't old. Paris isn't old. Come on. That's what about, what about the Chinese system they wanted to put in many years ago? Didn't they volunteer to pay for it themselves? The Chinese offered... the monorail. That was me. Yeah. The, the, no, they offered to put in the underground. Right, who's, um, who offered free, to put in the, mon- the monorail? They wanted to put in the monorail. I, I don't know, I can't remember that. Chinese or Japanese or something. Yeah, well, the Chinese have plenty of money. <laughs> they absolutely do. <laughs> okay, immigration and asylum is a big topic at the moment. It is a very big topic. Okay, and a lot of people are getting called racist. Yes. Probably wrongly sometimes, because maybe they're the majority pa- patriotic. Of our, the majority of people aren't racist. And it is disturbing. Uh, if you have a, a large influx that distorts the population uh, and so on. How but do you think I, we're handling the asylum process at the moment? I think by and large, fairly well. Um, um, I, I think... Do you, not, do you not think that we're... Are we too soft? Are we, no, because, we're not too soft. Well, according to reports from people who have worked in the system, they say that the majority of people coming into the country are not genuine asylum sisters who we should roll out the red carpet for, help as much as we possibly could. But economic migrants. Economic migrants. And perfectly right. And why not? I but, have no problem with economic David, migrants. But you can't go to America and be an economic migrant. But we did. Hundreds well, well, of thousands of Irish we people did, did but, but in the, the Ameri- past. But and the Americans still, didn't have we're the subsidies. We're still trying to get them legalised. Yes. The 10,000 or whatever it is Irish but, people over there without any documents who went in illegally, we're now doing everything we can to get them legalised. We have a completely different attitude. But the Americans, the American government weren't asked as when the Irish went to America, of course, as economic migrants, we didn't go over there and expect the American government to subsidise us. And that's, isn't that the difference now? No, the, the majority... Irish, there's only so Irish, much money in the, the Irish, kitty, isn't there? The Irish migrants want to work. That's one of the things that, I was, that I've, I've been working on. I actually produced legislation, a bill, which would have gone through, only Sinn Féin jumped ship at the last minute. Their three votes were absolutely vital. And that addressed all these issues, such as the right to work, the right to proper cooking facilities and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the vast, overwhelming majority of, of immigrants want to work, but they're not allowed. And even after the Supreme Court case, uh, the right to work is severely limited. And the person who took that case would not be allowed to work under that judgment. But if, if you allow immigrants to come into a country as asylum seekers and give them the right to work and the right to, I suppose, the rights that every other citizen has. They contribute enormously to Irish well, okay, society. But, but, okay, but let me, let me Then is there a point in having an immigration policy at all? Well, yes, there is, because, because there's a question of numbers. We can't, we can't, there's no suggestion whatever at the moment that we're overwhelmed. It's a small, in European terms, it all, it's a You're almost small. suggesting a bit of a free-for-all or a no borders. So, so you don't believe there should be borders? Well, I, there have to be borders for the time being. Of course, I'm, I'm not a complete utopian, uh, but I think, we should, I think we should be generous. And every time when immigrants come in, they are an absolute 
engine that drives the economy when I would they come agree in. With you. I would agree with you, but Priti Patel in the UK, the new Foreign Secretary of the UK, because Brexit, as you know, yes. is on the way. And where did possibly. he come from, I wonder, with no, a name she, like she, Patel, she, she. she or he or whoever it is. Came, I don't her know. family came from India originally. <laughs> well, there you are. <laughs> Pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> Pardon the pun. But, but in any case, <laughs> she has said the new foreign policy of the United Kingdom when Brexit, or if Brexit comes in on the 31st of January, would be that if you want to come to the United Kingdom, you will have to have a job that pays more than £34,000 sterling. You will have to be a professional worker. And you can't come into the that's United Kingdom. Oh, that's the worst aspect of the Tory party. It's an a- absolutely what, disgrace. What do you think is going to happen, by the way, in January? Do you think Brexit will happen? Well, I hope Jeremy Corbyn gets in. Oh, stop. I think he's absolutely We're going to wonderful. have to disagree in the first well, time. Jeremy Corbyn is a man of ideals, of principles, and he acts on them. And they say things like... Does he not sit on the fence a little bit? He's sitting on the fence over Europe, yes. Because he's, uh, ter- that, he's terrified of not getting in. There's going to be a hung parliament next week, you know that. Well, I don't, I'm not sure about that, but I hope Jeremy Corbyn gets in. He voted, yes, they say he voted against his own government. Yes, he did. He voted against it on Iraq and these sort of issues. He won't answer but he the was question about Brexit if he gets right. in. He won't answer the no, question. No, well, he has answered it. He said, I'm going to be neutral. I'm going to instantly That's not what the people That's not is it? Of course it is. Of course it is. But the media, the media, the right-wing Murdoch press are crucifying him and telling lies about him all the time. And this rubbish that he's anti-Semitic, I mean, absolute... I don't believe he's anti-Semitic. Right. Okay, but you mentioned the right-wing. Yes. Never before in the history of Ireland have we seen a division the way we're seeing it at the moment between the right and the left. So you've got the liberals and the conservatives. And it's almost like it's kind of illegal now or a crime to be right wing. Whereas, you know, if we go back in the past, it would have been probably the opposite, which it was. In fairness, the liberals were quite yeah. shamed in the past. But now there's a huge shift. And, you know, you're almost chastised if you're conservative or in any shape or form, if you voted no for abortion, if you voted no for same-sex marriage. No, if you, I, 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 said that, I said at the time, I, I remember there was a woman uh, on the abortion referendum with her daughter out in the RDS at the count, and I felt terribly sorry for her. I went over and, and spoke to her because she was on the anti-side. She, mm-hmm. she, she was against abortion and so on, which the overwhelming majority of people in Ireland used to be. Mm. I mean, this is a really extraordinary change. Uh, Why do you think that shift happened, that change? Well, how do, how I do you think it's think because it? of information. I, I think it's also because of the collapse in the political authority of the Roman Catholic Church, who used to tell people what to do and what to think and all the rest of it. But the beginning of so that... So a bit of a rebellion, so Yes, the beginning of that erosion came when the Pope decided against the, the advice of his expert panel uh, to outlaw uh, con- contraception. And people at that stage said, look, enough is enough. We're going to live our lives. And that made human sexuality independent of procreation and independent of the church's moral rulings. That was the beginning of the slide. And where, where are we going when you look at the rise of right-wing politics across the world? Donald Trump, of course. Well, well I think that's... Well, I'm assuming you despise Donald Trump. Do I, am I right in thinking uh, that? Yes, I do. Okay, I right. do, absolutely. And uh, we look at the rise of the right-wing across the world. Yes. Is that concerning, do you believe? It's very concerning, but it's quite understandable. And the reason for it, I believe, is because countries right across the planet acted in the face of the economic crisis. They acted immediately to rescue the financial institutions and to allow the ordinary citizens to go to hell. That's completely the wrong way around. The duty of good government is to protect the welfare and interests of the citizen. That is our primary 
function. Not we'll, we'll, we'll have bank. another long chat about immigration another time. I'd love right. to have a longer chat with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. But just be, finally, before you go, somebody wants to know what's David's favourite music. What do you listen to? Cla- I'm going to guess. Do you listen to classical music? Oh, I do. I listen to classical music. Of course music, you do. Particularly Chopin, <laughs> Frederick Chopin. Uh, but I also love jazz, vintage jazz. Yeah. Yes. I have so what ed- about modern music? Have you any interest in any modern music? Um, not terribly. No, no I don't. <laughs> well, even it's all there. whizzes and bangs and farts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, by the way, the winner of uh, if you want to go back to the 80s, by the way, and go to the Forever Young Festival, the winner today is Maria O'Brien Hedges from Goa. What a wonderful name. Maria O'Brien Hedges from Goa. You've got yourself the pair of tickets to go to, to the Forever Young Festival. But you have to tell the answer. Festival. It was Bonnie Tyler. It was. Look at yeah. you remembering what I told you because you didn't know what I I never it. heard of her. <laughs> But you told me, and I have a good memory. <laughs> well, look, PJ and Damien will announce, by the way, the full lineup of PJ and Jim. Did I say PJ and Damien? Sorry. PJ and Jim will announce the full lineup. Damien will be delighted with that. The full lineup tomorrow morning uh, for the gig. It's happening in July in Nace in Parmesan House Estate between the 10th and the 12th of July. Tickets go on sale tomorrow morning in July 2020. David Norris, it has been absolutely wonderful having you in this studio. And a real pleasure for me. You're such a bubbly and challenging personality now. All right, David, thank you very much indeed. Thanks to everybody who got involved in the show and thanks for all your texts. Damien is on the way. He's going to brighten up the afternoon for you. I'll talk to you again tonight, just after nine o'clock. I do this twice, you know, David. Oh, I know that. I listen to your 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 foul-speaking late-night <laughs> broadcast where they discuss things like, what do men like? And one of them <laughs> rang in and said, smelling women's knickers. I'll never forget that. <laughs>